Hey, babes. I am your host, Christina Catherine McGinnis, a recent college graduate who is just trying to figure her shit out. In the Bottled Blonde podcast, we are talking lots of booze with a new drinking word every week, dishing on our latest dating adventures, diving into work hacks, and the best hashtag self-care tips around. This is a place for all babes to come and chat about the millennial four pillars, booze, boys, business, and beauty. Come with a glass of champs and get ready to laugh, learn, and have a happy hour with your blonde digital BFF. Let's celebrate not having it all together, but having a good fucking time while we're at it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts every Thursday. Cheers. Hello, TBB babes. I am Christina Catherine McGinnis, the founder of KCN Connect, the blog, christinamcginnis.com, and the podcast, The Bottled Blonde. Hello, happy Thursday. My ass after this is so excited. I am off to go get a facial. There's this new place that some girlfriends told me about. It's called like Clean Face. I don't know, something clean face, clean up your dirty face, something along those lines. Anyway, you pay like a membership fee and then you can get unlimited facials. I don't know how good it is. So I'm scared to recommend it, but I will keep you updated because I want to know like, okay, if I only pay $99, I could literally go three times a week. My face would be fucking amazing. Like I cannot wait for this moment. So I'm going I will let you know how it goes, but we had a killer 4th of July and my face is disgusting because your girl literally face planted in the middle of a party down on the couch, face first out. She was knocked the hell out while there was like 30 people in this house and the loving boyfriend sat with me as I was just, I was done for. I'm a good 12 hour partier and right after the 12 hours, I cannot go any longer. Just not going to happen. So face pointed on the couch, literally scrubbed the makeup into the face. And now I'm breaking out. So this is why the facial is a necessity at this point in time. It is not a want. It is a need for life. So I cannot wait for this. And then this weekend is like more drinking. And I don't know what it is. My body is not well. I cannot do this. I'm literally still hung. It is Thursday. I am still hungover, not rested. I'm like, oh, I'm dying at this point in time. I just don't even know what to do with myself. So I really need to go chug some coffee. You know what? Maybe a shot would help me. I'm like slowly convincing myself that I need to get more drunk as we're talking here. Thirsty Thursday. Maybe it needs to happen. Okay. Anyway, I digress. Love you all. Let's listen to the episode. Maybe I'll get my shit together. Maybe I won't. It's very up in the air. All right. Ta-ta for now. Let's get into it. Hello, TBB babes. Today, we are interviewing Lisa Austin. Our drinking word of this episode is going to be job. If you are new here, hello. What's up? How the hell are ya? Thanks for being part of the TBB babes. And a drinking word is throughout the episode, we will say the word job or whatever word we pick of that week. When you hear that, make sure to take a swig of whatever you're drinking. Maybe it's a little matcha action. Maybe it's tequila, a spicy marg, if you will. We love this for you. Okay, whatever you're drinking, slurp it down. 
then keep listening to the episode. I swear I did this in the past few episodes. I got wasted. It was wonderful. I loved it. Plus, so many tips, tricks from all of the guests every single week. Lisa, I actually found on YouTube. So I occasionally will go through and I'll listen to the TED Talks while I'm on walks. YouTube is like pride, joy, love it. So I heard Lisa talk all about well, we go into it. I'm not going to ruin it, but she talks all about, you know, her leaving her job, what that looked like, how she realized that she was in such a negative, toxic work environment and what pretty much brought her to the edge to then start her full-blown, amazing, super successful career. So freaking empowering. This episode is just awesome, which is why I had to bring her on. You guys are just going to love her. So make sure to go say hi to Lisa. It's always really, really cool when you guys go say hello to our guests because then they feel extra special. All right, let's jump into it. Hello, TVP babes. Happy Thursday. Today I have Lisa and there is so much we are diving into. I cannot wait but specifically imposter syndrome. And I just did a deep dive stock on her. I feel like a stalker when anytime that I interview, because <laughs> I'm like, wow, I've literally been like listening and like looking at your LinkedIn, like literally everything. So I'm so excited for you to be on. Oh, well, I'm really happy to be here. And I never consider anyone a stalker. I really appreciate people <laughs> deep diving into my work. <laughs> I know. I'm like, woohoo. I, it was so like, I was just telling her how I listened to her TED talk and I'll, we'll link it in the show notes. Cause I really liked so many things that you went through and there's, oh, I don't want to like give too much away, but maybe you can dive in kind of quickly introduce yourself and a little bit about the TED Talk and how you ended up leaving a job that wasn't the right fit for you. Sure. So I am a psychologist and executive coach and you know, I practice in New York City. And I've written a book called Own Your Greatness, Overcome Imposter Syndrome, Beat Self-Doubt and Succeed in Life. And the TED Talk was... And I've been, ta- you know, I've been talking about and thinking about imposter syndrome and researching and studying it for a long time in my career. And the TED Talk was my ability to be able to share my own experience with imposter syndrome and the deepest, darkest moment that really changed the game for me and in some ways really made me really attack my imposter syndrome and decide I didn't want to live like that anymore. And so I think that's what the point of the the TED Talk was, is about a real dark, deep moment where I think a lot of us have, and it just was the moment that just turned everything around for me. Yeah, it was it was so amazing too. And you talk a lot about the term imposter syndrome, which I feel like so many people, it's like a hot word right now. And yes. what's so interesting about it is there's so many people that struggle with it on so many different levels. You had posted something on your Instagram, which I actually thought was so, I was like, wow, sometimes with yourself, you feel like, oh, there's only like this certain sector of imposter syndrome, but you even brought up like parenting and all these different avenues that I was like, okay, I'm not a mom. I'm a dog mom. But like, I didn't even think about the fact that so many moms could feel that way or so many different people. And we had a whole bunch of girls on on the podcast together and we were all sitting in the same room and every single industry avenue, like every single person had said at one point in time or currently that they still feel it. Why do you feel like so many people struggle with imposter syndrome? Yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. I think, you know, the, the data says about 70% of us struggle with imposter syndrome. So sometimes you see on these social media memes and everyone struggles with imposter syndrome. No, not everyone does, but a large majority of us do. And I think because some of the underpinnings in terms of early childhood roles and family dynamics are very common. 
And so those common dynamics, I think, you know, I don't think I know, lead to imposter syndrome and kind of create the fertile ground for, I think many of us have had one, two, three, four of these different experiences in childhood. They're they're what sort of, you know, connect the dots to to imposter syndrome. I think that's why I also talk about it in parenting, because I think it's so important to think about not doing this again, another generation, really being very thoughtful about how you parent, because it can really affect whether a kid develops it or not. And I've heard, I'm, I'm probably going to like butcher stats on here, but they say, isn't it between like your one in five is like essentially where you pretty much come up with your entire identity is, and it, or like your grounding. I don't know if that's right or not, but yeah, those are very important early years. They often talk about them as very central to attachment. And so attachment is so much about how we function relationally and how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, how we think about others in relation to ourselves. So those early first five years can be very critical to attachment style development. So yes. If you had a really important. fucked up first five years, <laughs> like what are you doing from there? Like how do you, like you, you post about two kind of your imposter syndrome origin story. So like, let's say you had a extremely like traumatic childhood, or there was a lot that happened in those first five, maybe even 10 years plus. How do you start working on that? Like, how do you like identify what that is and then try to move past that? I mean, I think, you know, in general, if you've had a really difficult early childhood experience, the key is to get into therapy. I mean, I would, therapy changed my life. It changes lives. Like find a great therapist and find a great match and really like do the work. I mean, because I think it can really, it can change your life. It can change generations of lives. So it's really critical. But I think for imposter syndrome, some of the common underpinnings for imposter syndrome are childhood roles. So you were either in the role of being the intelligent one. So you were the one who things came easy to, things were natural to you. So anytime you had to work hard at anything, you thought it was evidence of the fact that you weren't as smart as everyone thought you were. The role of being the hardworking ones, this is the case where you're typically not considered the intelligent one or the smart one, or the natural gifted one, and things are harder for you. So for you, the perception is I always have to grind. Nothing comes easy. You were never allowed to kind of see your kind of natural gifts and talents because everything was about extremely hard work. And then the third one is the survivor. So that's someone who didn't have a lot of parental guidance or support. And nobody was saying you were the intelligent or the hardworking one. They weren't saying anything. And there maybe was abuse or neglect and your, your achievements and accomplishments were about survival, about kind of moving out of that really dysfunctional place into someplace else with your achievements. And so for you, oftentimes, if you're in the survivor experience, it can feel like any one mistake, any one thing that happens, I'll lose everything. Even if it's not true, the experience of that is what it is. That's what it feels like. And then there's other dynamics too, family-wise. Yeah. So then moving into like adulthood, what are the signs of imposter syndrome? When does it start to come up? Is it like as early as maybe middle school or high school, or does it go into college? Like when's kind of a, a lot of, obviously this is general. It's not like the COVID, <laughs> yeah. you have it in high school, you're not getting it in college, but <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, the precursors of it, you can see, you know, in high school or in college or it's been studied in college students and, you know, found to be evident in college students. So I think probably that's when we start to think about, you know, adulthood solidifying is around 18 to 22 range. We start thinking about it crystallizing identity. So I think that's the place where we mostly think about this is when we're going to see it most predominantly start. And I think it's really the signs are the this idea that's constantly plaguing you that you're a fraud, that you're incompetent, and people are going to find out. And in order to cover up that experience of being found out, you either overwork or self-sabotage. And that overwork 
you know, because when we overwork, it often leads to burnout, but also the self-sabotage can also lead to burnout for people with imposter syndrome because we, we are successful. We're typically successful, achieved, have experiences, credentials, skills, but we don't internalize them. And that's the, the crux of the issue. However, even when we procrastinate as a form of self-sabotage, we typically procrastinate with short bursts of intense overwork. So we find a way to burn ourselves at it, even with the procrastination. That's so interesting. So for people who are then feeling these things, what are ways to overcome it? Because you have a book, a masterclass on literally how to uh, like essentially overcome this huge thing, which is imposter syndrome. Yeah. So when, when Richard and I wrote the book, one of the things, you know, we clearly looked at other research and other books and we were like, hey, look, there's a lot of stuff on what it is and how it looks and how it functions, but there's not a lot on well, how do you change it? How do you get out of it? And so our book was really focused on the tools and the skills to get out of it. And what we did was a deep dive on the research literature in the concept of imposter syndrome. It's the concept's over 40 years old. I think people don't recognize it because it's become popularized recently, but it's over 40 years old. So there's a fair amount of research. And so part of the, 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 the programmatic way to kind of deal with it has been about losing those research-based tools. And then there were gaps in the research. And when we looked at the gaps, we, we looked at what had been successful in our practice, other than these things that we're noting that had really changed the game for people. And we added those to the model. So in terms of what it takes, it takes understanding where it came from. So what are the childhood roles, family dynamics that led you there? The reason why we ask those kinds of things is because it tells us what the current day triggers are. It puts a really clear roadmap to helping you understand your present day triggers. And then we have to know what the triggers, the triggers are. And the reason why we need to know the triggers is because when you know your trigger, you can then stop and choose another behavior. Instead of the overwork or self-sabotage, you can choose something else like task management or performance anxiety reduction or something else. We also you know, are, are big on sort of helping you change the narrative, how you talk about you know, yourself to yourself and how you talk about yourself to others. And we, we don't often realize it, but we are reinforcing our imposter syndrome constantly. So these are some of the ways, and there's a bunch of them. There's many, many we could probably talk for hours about, but there, there, there are nine different tools in the book and it's been really successful. And I think people, a lot of people have been able to walk away with a real change in their imposter syndrome, which they never thought was possible before. And so it's, it's exciting to see that. That is. So so for someone who's like, all right, first step is like your kind of your origin. And then second step would be, you know, going through like what your current triggers are. Then three would be like essentially like reframing. Like when on their yeah. third step, would they like come to you for something like that? Could they do no, it? No, you can typically do it on your own. All of the steps you can totally do on your own. And yeah, you can also, we have that masterclass. So you could also do it with us. But you could totally do this on your own. Many people have done it on their own. And so the third step is the, the piece around acknowledging your strengths and accomplishments, learning to kind of say them publicly and, and being able to share with others confidants that you have imposter syndrome. The fourth step is about changing your narrative, looking at the narrative, the way that you've talked about how you've gotten to this point in life. Because oftentimes when we have imposter syndrome, we say, oh, I got that because it was luck, mistake, a function of overwork or a relationship. We never really attribute it to ourselves. And so really learning how to shift that narrative 
And then the next piece is around automatic negative thoughts. So oftentimes when we're triggered, we have these thoughts like, oh my God, that was so stupid. You know, what's wrong with me? Or I know that that person's thinking really that I was horrible in that presentation. So we have all these automatic negative thoughts that aren't really proven with the data around us, but we've come to believe them because we've heard them so much. And so we have to systematically learn how to combat those ants and, and come up with a much more positive tape, even when we make mistakes, even when we screw up, even when we fail. And the next step is valuing your self-care. So, you know, self-care is really important when you have imposter syndrome because oftentimes we put ourselves at the bottom of the list. We're like, well, we get whatever scraps of time are left over, but that's really detrimental to us, especially because many of us suffer with burnout. And so it's really learning how to structure, prioritize your self-care, engage in burnout reduction, deal with your burnout. Then it's dealing with roles. So oftentimes we're caught in these very specific roles. We're impossible. We have imposter syndrome. We're great at being the super person who knows how to dive into the rescue or being the helper who's always raising their hand and volunteering, even though you don't really can't manage it bandwidth wise. And so learning how to understand the typical roles that we engage in. And they're often, they're often come from this early childhood experience that we were talking about earlier. And then choosing new roles, like being a good help seeker, being somebody who learns to take calculated risks, you know, take, doing all these things that kind of really can expand your understanding of yourself. And then the next step is building community. Oftentimes when we have imposter syndrome, we're used to dealing with things alone and we are very good at, at managing alone, but it's not necessarily helpful to us. And so really learning how to build a really solid community around us of people who are grounders, people who are big picture thinkers, people who are imposter syndrome experts who also know the language and can help you kind of deal with that. And then the final piece is really helping people understand that this is a process. And that working on your imposter syndrome is not a linear line. It's very curvilinear. You'll have lapses. And that the key is not to kind of fall back into a relapse where you have a moment, you fall back into the old patterns. You're like, look, this is never going to be any different. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to even try. That's a relapse. And so really encouraging people to recognize it takes a commitment to the skills and tools and using them consistently to really get over this. And eventually you'll be able to turn the volume on it so, so quietly you can't even hear it anymore. Do you notice there are certain personality types that have this more than others? I mean, it's 70% of people, but yeah. I was talking with a girlfriend of mine, which is very interesting. We are both like energizer bunnies and we both have felt this a lot, way more than like colleagues, anyone that we've worked with. Like we've felt this like a ton. And we said, we had kind of like chatted about this. I don't know your thoughts, but we had said like, and our personalities were really high, like all the time, like way higher than like our boyfriends are way more energy, way more excitement. And then we'll have one or two days a month where we're really low or like, and those are kind of when those thoughts come in and I've known, we like are very unique in our, just our friends, like anyone that we've met and we've both said that, like that we run so high that we'll have those one or two days that we're low. And then that's when the imposter syndrome like kicks in. Is that normal for people? I mean, I think everyone has different experiences. I've seen people who are very energetic, very, you know, or type what, type A in some ways and, and they have it. And then I've seen people who are much more mellow and chill and still they have it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it really depends. I, I think one of the things, one of the common traits that are underneath it is perfectionism. So if you're perfectionistic and it is quite common for people who are perfectionistic. And I think there are, there are kind of correlates to anxiety and depression. But, you know, I think one of the things that is really important to note from what you had said about that story is that it can get us when we're feeling, we're feeling kind of like 
anxious or nervous or down. Like those can be moments where we're more vulnerable to it because our, our, our regular kind of like healthy defenses aren't up. And so I think it can be really, really difficult when you're feeling particularly having a difficult moment or having a rough moment or feeling just not at the top of your game. It can be very, very triggering for us in those moments, I think across the board. That makes a lot of sense. Can you dive into, because I want them to hear this, especially if they haven't heard the talk, the TED talk about like what exactly made you leave your job, kind of like Mm -hmm. paint the picture for them. Because I feel like a lot of people, maybe even in COVID or like before that have felt the same way. And I feel like there's so many people that are stuck, but how they don't have like the courage to leave and like they have to see those things to do that. So I just felt like it was really powerful. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, sure. So I was in a job probably like uh, one or two years outside of my doctorate and I had left a, a faculty position, you know, which was a substitute position and, and ran out of time. Then they thought it would go full time and it didn't. And then I just, I kind of wasn't doing a lot on my own in terms of professional development. Someone offered me a job and I was like, yeah, you know, I really don't feel like searching. I don't feel like looking. I was just going to take this thing. And it wasn't necessarily in line with what I wanted to do or where my, you know, my career was going, but it was a good enough job. It was interesting to some extent. And then pretty quickly into the job, maybe like first couple months that my boss would, you know, I'd watch him kind of like dismiss me in meetings or like if I would say something or an idea, he'd shut me down. Even like, I remember being in a meeting, my job was actually to teach faculty members how to teach. So I was teaching pedagogical strategies and there was another faculty member in a meeting. She was like, I don't like the way he's treating you. And I was like, oh crap, when somebody raises the way that you're being treated publicly and they see it and, and I was feeling it, but I just didn't feel like it had risen to the level of like doing anything about it. And then it was getting progressively worse at one moment. At one time, he actually yelled at me for having, bring, you know, we would do these meetings with the faculty members and I would have to order coffee and things like that. And he would, the coffee was cold. And then he yelled at me for not ordering a refresh of the coffee in front of all these faculty members, which really undermined my authority and really, you know, made me feel really bad. And then, you know, I was really trying to get up the gumption, but I was super burnt out from my own, from my own doctorate and from everything else after it. And I just was struggling to kind of job search and get out of there and really think about what I wanted to do next. Like I just could not, it wasn't, I was supposed to be studying for my licensing exam. I wasn't even doing that. And then I was working long hours at this job. And then one day we were in a meeting and we were, it was all senior, it was all women senior staff and there was music playing in the background. And somebody asked, you know, what's that music that's playing? And he said, it's music to soothe the savage breast. And in that one moment, it was like my professional life flashed before my eyes. And I was like, oh my God, like this guy is really kind of in some ways insinuating how much he can embarrass us, insult us, treat us like garbage. And we have to stay. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to stay anymore. I don't, not only with him, but with any other boss, I don't want to do this anymore. And because I had had other experiences of crappy bosses similar in some ways. So after the meeting was over, I called my husband and I was like, I need to quit. And he was like, quit, please quit. And I cleared up my office that weekend. And Monday I walked in and I, I quit the job, no notice, no nothing. And, you know, in, you know, in the grant world, I had a, I was, I was on a grant line and it was an education and my money was what we call encumbered, which meant that it couldn't be spent on anything else. And he was furious. He, during, when I quit, he yelled at me, he cried. He told me I'd never work in education again. It was a very dramatic scene. And it really made me feel very scared. 
mean, I remember, I can remember even as I'm talking to you, hearing my footsteps like go down the linoleum floor on the, my way out because they were like deafening. But I was terrified and I got home and I had a panic attack and I was like, what did I do? Because, you know, I was like, I could screw up my whole career right now. And, but I knew I had to leave and, you know, I'd left without any job. And my husband had always said to me, you are marketable. You are, you're valuable in the, in the, in the market. You have to believe that. And I never really believed it. Even with an Ivy League PhD, I never believed it. It's the imposter syndrome. And within two weeks, I had a job. The job was working like, I think I was working three days a week, making more than I was making full time. And I'm working for somebody who I actually, who actually was also a psychologist who I was able to tell what had happened to me at the previous job. She's like, what happened there? And I told her and she was like, oh my God, I'm glad you're here. We'll come with us. We'll take care of you. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And it was amazing. And, I, and, I, and from that place, I was actually able to, to study for my licensing exam. I you know, ended up like building my practice out and really starting my, the life that I wanted to lead. But it came from that moment of that breaking point for me. That's, that's so amazing. I feel like that's... I, there was a piece of this that your husband told you and I freaking loved it. I was like, this is going to be the quote of the podcast. And I think it was something along the lines of like, look at how hard that you've worked for someone else. Now imagine putting all that time, energy, and effort into a job that you love that's for yourself and how powerful yeah. it could be. It was something along those lines. Yeah. I don't think it hit everything. It was, uh, I remember it because it, it always resonates with me. And I always think about it, which is that when you work as hard for yourself as you do for others, you're going to be unstoppable. I was right. Oh, it's so amazing. I'm like, we need t-shirts. That's like, (laughs) (laughs) I know. And he told me it like a thousand times. And it wasn't until that moment where I really was able to take it in and I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm going to work hard for myself. I literally that day where after the panic attack and I calmed down enough to kind of focus again, I started, I started setting up our practice legally. I started to do, I like started to work for myself as if it was a job, you know, I never did that in my life before. I never worked for myself in the ways that I I was capable of working. That's amazing. If you could have looked back and like told anyone who's in that situation, like currently, maybe right now, what advice would you give them? I mean, I think I I would give them that line. I would give them that quote. (laughs) And I would say it is changeable. I think that that, there were moments before that moment that I felt like, this is just my life. This is just what it's going to be. It's not going to get any better than this. This is just all that it is. And I, and I, you know, I think I, I would tell them it's not, there's, there's there are many more beautiful, amazing things ahead of you. If you can conquer this imposter syndrome, it is holding you back. It is making you feel like you don't, you barely deserve to be in a crappy place. You know, it's, it's, it does insidious things to us. And even research has shown that it, it reduces our job knowledge. It reduces our ability to negotiate effectively for ourselves. It, it reduces our understanding of where we fall in a team. So we're not necessarily good at advocating for promotion. It also makes us more organizationally committed. So we'll commit to an organization more than it will commit to us because of the imposter syndrome. So it does some really horrible things to your career life that you start to believe is the only option, but it's not, it's completely not, you know, my sister, you know, who works with me on my Instagram always says to me, when she, when she like looks at the results from the masterclass, she was like, no one's going to believe any of this. Yes. And I was like, I don't know what to tell you. It's the real results because break, breaking it is like amazing. It is like, it is like the world just shifts. And that's what it felt like for me. It was like the world just became brighter and in color. And I was like, all things are possible. That's so amazing. I think that's just like so inspirational for people who are like, crap, I feel like I'm in like a bad place in my job and want to either exit or 
maybe pivot for you now being employed by like yourself. What struggles do you face now? Because I don't think a lot of people talk about, okay, you go from working for someone and essentially a lot of times they create the strategy or the formula and you have your tasks all lined up there. Now, I mean, it's been years, you worked for another company and now yourself. What struggles do you face currently? I mean, I think in in terms of currently, like I think, you know, there are things I hate doing, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, I, we're, we're not usually my jobs that I have to do now. You know, I don't love, yeah. you know, things like, you know, accounting and the oh paperwork and administration. Oh. I hate that stuff, but I have to do it and I have to structure it. So that's not my favorite things to do, but I always often remember that it's for me. And so it makes it a little easier. It doesn't make it better. It's not like awesome, but it, I always remember this is for me. This is for my family. This is for my, my business. So that, I think it does make that better. I think also too, you know, my imposter syndrome will rear its little ugly head at times, especially when I'm like, you know, the first time I did, you know, Good Morning America or the first time, you know, it, it, it is like, it, it scares me around new things, especially new things, very visible. Like, and so it, it'll kind of sh- try to show up and I really have to use the tools to really get it to quiet down because it can disrupt me. It can make me anxious. It can make me kind of self-sabotage in a moment. And so I really have to work hard when I'm, when I'm tasked with new, exciting opportunities. I think they are exciting, but oftentimes the way my brain is terming them is like, oh my God, you're going to show everyone you're, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And so, you know, I really have to keep challenging, you know, the experience, but it, it's definitely, it used to be on like 10 in terms of volume. It's like a one or two, it pops up here and there, but it's definitely a hundred percent quieter than it ever was. So what do you personally want to be known for? I mean, I think, I think one of the things, I mean, I, it's kind of becoming very cool to be known for being, you know, kind of someone that helped people solve their imposter syndrome. That feels really amazing. I think generally I want to be able to help people who are amazing, get to live in their amazingness. And I think that is really, it sounds hokey, but that's really what I enjoy. People who don't know how amazing they are, getting them to kind of unearth that and let them really live and feel the power of it. And so that's really what I enjoy most. Do you have a book, podcast, or any type of resource that you've like listened to or something that's brought you a ton of value? In terms of like books, there are a couple books that I thought have brought me a lot of value. One of them is the Pomodoro method. So it's a task management method to really help you deal with like when you're feeling anxious or overwhelmed by a task and you can't get started. It's been amazing. I love that thing. I use it all the time. I do it, use it to do housework because I hate housework. I think also to the healing power of the breath. It's a book by Brown and Gerbog. They're holistic psychiatrists, and it's all these different breathing techniques that I practice. I practice the coherence breathing, which is the first one, and I think it's been really helpful for me to, you know, engage in mindfulness in a way that resonates for me. So that book is amazing. So those have brought both brought me a lot of like joy and you know help in my life. Have you ever listened? Uh, his name's like I think it's Wim Hof. He's like this huge breathing guy. Oh, you should download his app. I'm okay, I'll check it out. My dad had a heart condition and is like, I am not doing this. He's like, this is freaking weird. But he does like these breathing exercises. I swear to God, I'm like high afterwards because he does like, I want to say it's like you do 30 breaths and then you'll hold for as long as you can. And then you push out and then you hold, but you do it in like essentially sets. But when I am done, I'm like literally high. Like I'm awake. I'm like, it's like you've had like four cups of coffee and he does a lot around. Yeah. Wim Hof, but he's done like 
climbed Mount Everest in shorts and no shoes. Like the guy's oh, wild. But, <laughs> and he also does like the ice. I don't know if I'd advise that, but yeah. yeah I would not you advise that. You might lose a toe or two. <laughs> the toes are gone after this. But, <laughs> I'm sure. But he is like all about like the ice baths and showers. And, but he's like really cool. Like listening to him talk, yeah. his practice was very, it's just so, yes. Know, so, so are, so are Brennan Gerbog. They're, they're a married couple and they do research on the breathing technique and they've seen it in six weeks using the breathing technique twice a, twice a day, a reduction in anxiety, depression, PTSD. Six weeks is insane to reduce those numbers. So it's like pretty amazing. And I love breathing and it can be a really, if you struggle with other forms of mindfulness, it can be a really lovely mindfulness place to start. Yeah. That's awesome. So they, you said they have a book. Yeah. It's called the healing power of the breath. Okay. Amazing. I will look it up. (laughs) (laughs) Tell all the TBB babes where they can find you, follow you, say hello. Sure. So I'm on Instagram with Dr. Orbe Austin, also Twitter, same handle. And then I'm also on LinkedIn. You can follow me there. I I am a LinkedIn top voice. So I'm always writing about imposter syndrome and its impact. Yeah. That's amazing. I know I'll, I'll go on, I'll go follow you on LinkedIn. Cause yeah, I had looked you up. So that's so awesome. I LinkedIn is like such a cool platform. Like I feel like in the recent, like even in the last like two to three years, they've made like leaps and bounds and like the way that they've changed everything and it's way yeah. more interactive. And so I'm like, I'm starting to love it. It's, it's great. And it, it really is an underused platform and it, you can, it, there's a lot of ways you can really like maximize your impacts there. So I think it's really great. And there's a, there's actually a LinkedIn editor podcast that I love called Hello Monday. It's a great podcast. Um, she does some great stuff around career and like career trajectory and stuff. So. Oh, I'm going to listen to her. I, I'm yeah, gonna so, like, so well-produced. It's a very well-produced podcast. Fantastic. She's amazing. Great interviewer. She's super smart. Woohoo. Okay. Hello, Monday. I'm going to go say yes. <laughs> Well, babes, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe and go tell our guests of the week, hey, and that we sent you over. Ta-ta for now. 